Alexi, sir. Hello. You are doing this show at the Udderbelly. Yes. But it's not a comedy show. It's not a stand-up no. show. This is about your autobiography. Yeah, yeah. Memoir, we like Memoir, to say. Because it, it, it means you can lie completely. <laughs> if you call it a memoir, I think. And also, it means you don't have to span the entire... No, exactly. It's volume one of, you know, you know what I hope will be a five or six volume leather-bound yeah. set. But seriously, because in it, I mean, you've done so many interesting things, which we'll yeah. talk about, but you don't yeah. talk about any of the, no. the famous things. No, it? it spans, like, well, from my parents' meeting, obviously, before I was born, to... When I'm 17, and it's essentially, a, I, I suppose if you're interested in me, it's how I came to be the peculiar creature that I am. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book off the mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. But it's also more than that. It's a kind of a um, memoir of a kind of political movement, really, because both my parents were in the Communist Party, and it's about what it's like to grow up in that, and also it's about, you know, when as a child I travelled to Eastern Europe a lot. It's sort of about that, and it's about train travel, and it's about social upheaval really because the period that it spans also you know Liverpool goes from this extraordinary extraordinarily wealthy city to just this you know this on the edge of catastrophic kind of economic collapse so it's about that as well really it's sort of it seemed enough for the first obviously as you get more into later life the people are still alive and still able to employ expensive lawyers and I don't know I don't really know how you would deal with that and still be kind of frank, really. I mean, if this volume works, then I would, you know, I would endeavour to do that, but it's a, it's an extra challenge, you know. Well, there will be people listening who will think, oh, well, I guess he's, you know, this is his first book and you've gone, well, like, yeah. here is my comedy. And, <laughs> my tragic comic and this is your, memoir. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. It, which it isn't. You, no. You're kind of officially an author now. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've been accredited. They've given me the beard and everything, you know, so I am officially an author. Now, I mean, I haven't done stand-up for about, or since 1996, so getting on for 15 years. And in that time, I've written two collections of short stories and three novels, all of which have been critically acclaimed and some of which have sold very well. Do you consider that your occupation now? Yeah, definitely. Is that what it says on your passport? Uh, Yeah, you don't have to uh, actually say what you do on your passport. But um, if it did, I would say male model and <laughs> circus acrobat and author. And do you, because you have had this TV career, do you get treated yeah. like an author or do you get treated like a celeb author sometimes? It's both a curse and an advantage, really, sort of, you know, so probably the effect kind of wipes itself out. I mean, obviously, as an author, having had a history as a, you know, my own TV series and stuff. You get to push to the front in a way for publicity and stuff like, you know, displays in Waterstones and all that stuff. You know, you get more press attention than, than somebody, you know, somebody who didn't have that background. On the other hand, I think that I did that an interview with Mark Lawson for BBC Four a few years ago and he said he's been on awards juries several times where my work has been considered and rejected simply because of 
my previous convictions. Seriously, what? Because they think that people won't take the award seriously because they'll think they've given favouritism. I don't know what their thinking is, really. I mean, I think... I mean, he said it on the telly, so... Um, I don't really know. I think it might be partly that, you know, I don't need the help. And it, some of it's prejudice that because of the kind of performer I was that my work, you know, can't be serious. You know, awards juries by and large lack a sense of humour, I think. But, I mean, I've always found, generally speaking, the reviews in newspapers and so on, I've got very, very helpful and very, very fair-minded. They've been fantastic. Not just critical as well as, as laudatory, so... I can't really complain about that. But, yeah, I think if I was somebody else, I would have been, and this is sort of what Mark Lawson implied, you know, I would have been at least long-listed for one of those, you know, the Booker or one of the the other ones, you know. And it does help in terms of sales and seriousness. So it's, it's, it's annoying, but on the other hand, you know, it's... It's not the end of the world. Well, let's talk about the comedy. Let's talk about the stand-up. Mm-hmm. So when you started, it kind mm-hmm. of seemed like there was two routes into stand-up. And one was to do the sort of Jimmy Tarbuck-type mainstream, slightly sexist and racist, <laughs> sometimes not even slightly. Yeah. <laughs> or the other was to go to Oxbridge and do Footlights. Yeah. And you didn't come through either <laughs> of those things. No. I mean, there was a third and an equally repellent thing, which was to be a folk musician, like you know Mike Hardin or Billy Connolly or Jasper Carrot. But that wasn't going to work for me either. No, I had this idea that... There was a space for another type of comedy, which was cabaret, really. I mean, which was, I, because of my political uh, affiliations and history, I'd always been interested in Brecht and, you know, that idea of performing the kind of Weimar Republic kind of cabaret. I had the idea that you could do stand-up, a kind of American kind of Lenny Bruce Richard Price stand-up in a kind of cabaret setting. But the market wasn't there, really. And in fact, I did, me and another guy were doing that. How did you start? Like, do you remember the first time you ever... Well, yeah, I was in this theatre group run by a mate of mine I'd been at school with in Liverpool, and he was in the Communist Party. And he did this Brecht, Songs and Poems of Bertolt Brecht, called About Paul B.B., and you would do these poems. At the time of the First World War, in a cell in the Italian... What a stripper thinks of when she dances. It was good, actually, you know, and it, and it didn't backpedal on Brecht's political affiliations. Anyway, we're in this group, and there's like 14 of us or something, and then there was the inevitable round. It went down to two, and I just thought, there's a gap here for smart political comedy about drugs and lifestyle and stuff like that. So me and this other guy just wrote this show, and then we toured it, but it was in just the oddest venues. And twice it ended in a serious riot because people didn't know what we were attempting, and it, it seemed confrontational. People had no idea what it was, because there was no history of it, I suppose, in this country. And it, people could find it quite unsettling. And so know. what exactly was it that you were doing? Well, we would. it was like a sketch show, but I would occasionally step out of the character and do monologues, you know, stand-up. But they were about my early stuff at the comedy store and the stuff that's on Secret Policeman's or The Ball. It's stuff that I was doing in that show, the stuff about smoking dope and giving you the effects of typhoid and the stuff about people getting into fights in cake shops about philosophy and stuff. I mean, all that done in that kind of aggressive um, skinhead character. I was doing that stuff then, really. But people frightened people. (laughs) So then you you started doing stuff at the comedy store. Well, what happened was that the two owners of the comedy store had seen the idea in the States and placed an ad in private eye looking for performers and really they hadn't had anybody auditioned who was even never mind talented but was even sane really 
So I turned up doing these bits from the show, and they immediately, uh, people are doing PhDs on this now, but immediately they offered me the job of MC, really. So I was the MC on the opening night of the first comedy club in Britain, really. And did you make a living out of it? Yeah, no, I mean, immediately. The comedy store was two nights a week, and I think I was the only one that got paid. But very quickly, a core of performers began to form, and we set up our own kind of alternative cabaret circuit, and that paid pretty well. And I was still teaching during the day, so I was a college lecturer, really. So I would ride to from Fulham to Holloway on my bike, teach all day, and then do gigs at night, you know, like cycle to the Albany Empire in Deptford and do a gig, and then cycle to the Comedy Store and be there till four in the morning. And, uh, you know, the money started to accrue, really. And we, we live very simply. I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but it never occurred to me to buy some new trousers or anything, you know, not for years. So, I mean, that in a sense gives you a kind of freedom because you're not performing for money. And none of because we came out of that, all the other performers as well came out of that left kind of theatre thing. Nobody got very consumerist for quite a long time, really. What do you think of, I mean, today you can make a career out of doing open spots. You know, <laughs> really? people do. People yeah. make a living out of it. Like, what do you think of that? At the moment, it seems that there is this very thriving stand-up scene. You know, if you just look in time out in London, there's 25 gigs mm. every single night mm. with seven comedians on each mm. bill. But obviously, there's a certain extent to which quality has shot down because people see it on telly. Everyone thinks they can do stand-up. <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, it is very healthy. I think the aberration was not now, but was really the vacuum that we filled mm. because... Comedy had, had been this massive musical circuit, which had died in the 50s and 60s, and so it opened the door to these terrible kind of working men's clubs, the Bernard Mannings and the Tom O'Connor, just the most dreadful, awful people. And that was the odd period. I mean, I think now where people like stand-up, and so clearly there's a market for it. I mean, obviously that comes with problems. It seems to me, not that I particularly study, but it seems to be very hierarchical now. And also you do get, I mean, it wouldn't, I mean, it's very technical, but that situation where people like Addison Creswell are both managers and producers is actually illegal in the States. You can't be an agent and be a producer as well because there's an obvious conflict of interest. Hang on, how does that work technically? Well, I mean, I think a lot of those firms like Talkback both manage people and produce content so if they're producing content i think they're going to choose the people that they manage you know what i mean and that was actually outlawed in the state so big agencies can't like icm or whatever can't produce content that kind of hierarchical thing also induces a kind of conservatism i mean it did surprise me that as far as i know there doesn't seem to be any really political comics out there apart from the older generation of kind of mark the two marks and Jeremy Hardy, Rob Newman. And it surprises me that a comic hasn't seen an opportunity there. I might be wrong, but just an opportunity, the way, you know, Ben Elton saw an opportunity to be uh, anti-Thatcher. I mean, he's, he's, you know, those views have modulated uh, now, but at least it, he, he sees that chance. Nobody seems to have done that with this present kind of financial crisis, and that is surprising, I think. But because I've got another life, I, I don't know how I'd feel if I would watch somebody like... Michael McIntyre, you know, filling these arenas. I don't know how I would feel if I wasn't a serious author. <laughs>
back to you at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. You were at the comedy store, and then you and some other people went and formed your own club. Yeah, we after about a year, the comedy store was like a circus then, so um, it was wild. I mean, it was fantastic, but it really was very nuts. Um, in what sense nuts? Well, there were still a lot of people there who'd, who'd come in because it was open till 4am, and it was very... It was very uh, difficult to get a drink in London and it was four pound I think to get in which was pretty cheap really if you wanted to drink so and it was in this proper strip club I mean proper strip club you know, and there was all these topless dancers and it was what you imagined Soho should be you know? and Soho still was much more unfriendly at night than it is now and also they had this thing with the gong which militated against kind of more cerebral material so you, you had I mean it was a good education for it was a, it was a very fast learning curve that people were on so what would it be every single show every show they had this gong yeah and people would if they didn't like you would howl gong gong and then sometimes like there was a guy called Andy Delatore who was an actor who did this routine about Northern Ireland you know and it was about he was joking about this uh conservative politician who'd been blown up and killed and the audience were going mental you know but I was like you know no I'm gonna leave him on man because it's like about Northern Ireland you know so I I was this you know kind of god really who decided who lived and who died which suited me enormously but you still decided to yeah Peter Richardson um, realized the limitations of it he went over to um, Paul Raymond who had a similar strip club but Raymond's Review Bar he proposed that we put on a show there and Raymond was keen and so he took the core of those at the comedy store which was me Rick Mayer and Adrian Edmondson uh, Peter Richardson and Nigel Planer and uh, then we had a kind of revolving troupe of other people Arnold Brown and then after a few months French and Saunders auditioned and they kind of completed the lineup really. From then on, it was kind of fixed. And from there, really, from that club was where the Young Ones was born, and also the Comic Strip Presents was born. Which really. came first out of those two? Well, Peter Richardson was always a terrible control freak, and he hated, he really hated Paul Jackson, the uh, producer of the Young Ones. And so. Peter was originally scheduled to play the character Mike in The Young Ones, but he fell out with... Can you say cunt on a podcast? Yeah, you can yeah, say Well, he, he called Paul Jackson a cunt. So he left, and so I think probably maybe The Young Ones came a little bit before, but I think they were on the TV more or less simultaneously. I don't know the actual Okay, so Young Ones was on BBC and Comic Strip Presents was on Channel 4. the same people. Right. Yeah. And the comic strip presents... Do you want to just explain, like... I wasn't in the early ones because I had this stupid idea. I said, we, we, we shouldn't... I was, like, loyal to the young ones. I said, no, I'm only going to do the young ones. I'm not going to do the comic strip presents. Regardless of the fact that everybody who was in the young ones was in the comic strip presents, apart from me, and I wasn't even, like, one of the creators of the young ones. But anyway, the comic strip presents... The first film was on the first night of Channel 4, which was, what, 25 years ago or something. Every single one was a different film. They were terribly, I wouldn't admit it then, but they were very groundbreaking. The very first one was called Five Go Mad in Dorset, I think, or Devon or something. And it was a kind of spoof of Enid Blyton, but with very knowing references. And then all of them got to write ones. And and after a while, I kind of realised my mistake and came on board, really. There was three movies. The first one is the best, which is called Supergrass Cinema Film. Over the years, 40-odd little films, I think. And what was it about them that you think was groundbreaking? Well, I think it was just the... 
they covered such a wide swathe of material, but it was partly the performances, the nihilism of them. They were quite controversial, some of them as well. Yeah, a lot of... I mean, the Rick and Aid one, Mr Jolly Lives Next Door, was was all about chopping people up. And stuff. That was the one that had Peter Cook in it. Peter Cook in it, yeah. And they got some, also some great guests. Uh, and there was one that Aid wrote called Bad News that came out more or less... I think he probably had idea the same time as um, Spinal Tap, and it was very... Similar to Spinal Tap, so that same idea. And just, yeah, they used a lot of... It's hard to, for anybody that doesn't remember it, it's hard to recall the comedy landscape then. But, you know, contemporary references. Comedy lived in a kind of world of the 1950s, really, in which references to drugs or sex or politics didn't really intrude. And so it was just revolutionary to say marijuana or Northern Ireland. You didn't really have to do any more than that. So the young ones, you played the, well, amongst other characters, the <laughs> landlord, yeah. Jersey Bolowski. And yeah. did it, It's for me, it's one of the first comedy series I remember watching. I remember being allowed to stay up late to watch it. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was enormously exciting. I didn't understand most of the references <laughs> in it, but still, no, no. <laughs> would laugh uproariously when everyone else in the room did. And did it feel, you did two series of the young ones, did it yeah. feel like a big deal at the time? Did you all kind of become famous? We did, but we already thought we were famous anyway. So that kind of confirmation didn't really make much difference, I don't think. And again, talking about the kind of financial things that we didn't, our lives really didn't change that much for an awful long time it just felt like a kind of gradual process of of becoming well known really but i don't know i mean i don't know whether it was kind of sympathetic magic in a sense but my inclination was also to really not think about it too much you know to not to just kind of no yeah you know i'm on this film i'm on this tv series i'm getting all these offers i didn't really think about what it meant i think that's quite a common thing with people who get famous that you tend not Partly because you're frightened that it'll go away, as it inevitably does, but also because you're sort of so caught up in the kind of whirlwind of it. You just sort of don't notice, really. I mean, I wish I had paid more attention. Well, you went on and you did a lot of stuff. I mean, you you were doing tours and you had a stand-up yeah. video that came out. You were in, started doing films. Yeah, but it was always difficult for me, or I always perceived it as being difficult. I always had difficulty... Again, you know, some venues, like I'd play like Nottingham Concert Hall or whatever, it was 2000, that would sell out bang in a couple of days. But there'd be other venues that would be a push to sell, even at the height of my fame. And, you know, something like, you know, my hit record came out in 82. So you had a pop career as well? I had a pop career. I had my, I was on top of the pops. Yeah, yeah. I had my novelty single. But then it, it took two years for that to be a hit. And they, it was never, because you were pioneering partly, you were pioneering the venues, you were pioneering. Like somebody, I don't know, like Russell Brand, for example. Russell Brand has this kind of highly trained team around him say to themselves, where do we see Russell in five years? Team Russell, where do we see Russell in 10 years? And he's not only got writers, people who write his Bon Mo and his autodidactic kind of stuff, but he's got the right accountants. He's got the accountant who understands. He's got the lawyer. He's got the... We didn't have any of that stuff. I just had one crazy man. And also, you know, the, the venues are all sorted out. If you're at that level, you play this place. If you're at the next level, you play this place, it's all sorted out. But we were all pioneering all that stuff. And so you didn't know that there wasn't a market for hyper-political stand-up Coventry in Hastings. It just wasn't, you know? And so it was, it always felt like a struggle, really. It never really felt 
easy. Because you then did your own show, Alexis mm-hmm. Sells Stuff. Mm-hmm. I kept changing it. I've done six series for the okay, BBC, so, but I would change the title right. to try and get rid of viewers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant strategy. Um, it worked very well. But you won tons of awards. Yeah. The shows did, like yeah. Royal Television Society, and you got an Emmy for Best Comedy. Yeah, for the- yeah. Bronze Rose of Montreux. I was only beaten out of the gold by a, an undercover priest from Vatican TV who hated me. And am I right in thinking that you were a bit blasé about all of them at the time? Well, again, it's that kind of... Um, blasé implies... An element of being sensible. I think I was just stu- arrogant and stupid, and I didn't appreciate what it meant. I mean, the only prize I ever won that was voted for me by the public, you know, there used to be this other listings magazine called City Limits in London, and they voted me their favourite comic of 1980. Yeah, my speech on getting the award was, I, I can't tell you how little this means to me. And I, <laughs> but I guess it didn't, but it was a kind of arrogance and a kind of stupidity and a kind of, I mean in a sense the good side of it probably was that I didn't want to be different to who I was you know I didn't want to once you start sort of accepting and believing and understanding that you are on the telly and in those days going out to five six million homes you know you are on top of the pops there are these huge numbers of people whose lives you intrude upon then it kind of starts to change your sense of yourself I think you know the good side of that arrogance was that I never wanted to um, believe that bit of me you know and presumably could because of the kind of comedy you were doing could quite seriously affect your comedy if you suddenly become part of the machine yeah yeah I mean also but you know not becoming part of the machine implies that I kept my I mean I rented a room off the machine you know (laughs) me and the machine went out together for a while I didn't live an entirely um, ethical. I made a few contracts with the devil, but by and large, I tried to set myself some parameters. I think when I started out, and by and large, I think I didn't transgress those. I mean, to some extent, I was never interested in those blandishments. It was one of the things, was a career. There's a, a clear path that's laid down if you want to be a superstar. One of the things that you do is that you get rid of all your old friends, your, your, your first wife, you only mix with people of equivalent or superior status to you, and you see that. And did you see that with people that you'd come up? Yeah, oh yeah. The, the second series of the Young Ones, I mean, Rick and Lisa, and I suppose Ben, wanted to be friends with that Oxbridge crowd with Rowan and Mel and Griff, and, you know, Mel and Griff turn up in Bambi, and I'm like, and these people are the enemy, man. I mean, these are, these are the people we've been fighting against. You know, these are the people. And they sort of said, well, not us. That was you. You thought, we never said we were revolutionaries. That was just your stupid idea. But they fell in with that crowd, that set, really. <laughs> Dickie Curtis and then Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And I never wanted to. I mean, I actually don't mind those people. And some of them, I mean, I don't think I'm friends with any of them. But these days, they are very talented they control a lot of the comedy firmament. But, you know, I didn't want to be friends with those people, you know, or anybody else famous. You uh, were in a Hollywood film, though. You were in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I was, yes. I was in several Hollywood films. That's just yeah. one of the, the ones that's that the kind of the... shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was in, yeah. And if Steven Spielberg had wanted me to be his friend, I would have, I would have found it hard to refuse, but he didn't. Was that either a conscious thing to go to Hollywood or to not go to Hollywood or to... I, well, I was very ambitious. <laughs> I shouldn't disguise the kind of ravening 
ambition that I had. Just I was kind of stupid about going. To, I mean, you look at, again, you look at Russell Brand, you know, he, he's very good at making those allegiances. You know, he's friends with Jonathan Ross until Jonathan Ross becomes a problem. You know, his girlfriend is not some woman he met in a calf. It's Katy Perry who adds to, it's an allegiance, it's an alliance. You, know, you look at Ricky Gervais, you bet, you know, his, his friends would be Ben Stiller and that's just what you do. But I, yeah, I wanted to be big in the States. I had this stupid idea and people would offer me acting roles and so I would take them really. But I could be a good actor. I mean, I am a good actor if cast in the right role, but I, I made some stupid choices and some, stu- and I didn't try. You know, there's, in terms of stand-up or in, as an author, there is nothing I've ever done that I'm ashamed of. I can't say the same about some of the films I've been in. So um, your TV show is the last kind of incarnation of this particular one was the uh, merry-go-round. Okay, yeah, so that was the one with Edgar Edgar Wright directed. Yeah. yeah, I mean one of the things I was always very proud of, of about my shows where they were always a kind of academy for writers or directors that the first three series were written by David Rennick who went on to do One Foot in the Grave and uh, Jonathan Creek and Andrew Marshall who did 2.4 Children and Dad and then the all new sh- was the first big job for Graham Linnan and Arthur Matthews who then went on to do Father Ted Black Books IT crowd and then the last series was directed by a 22 year old called Edgar Wright who now did you know, Hot Fours Shaun of the Dead and spaced but you also you did this sitcom which I've heard so much about have never seen but with Arthur Matthews and Graham Linnan Paris Mm. will you tell me about Paris well yeah I thought Paris was going to be my kind of black adder really it was me as um, this kind of painter set in 1920s amongst the painters in Paris and I was this feckless artist called Alain Degout and uh, Neil Morrissey played my sidekick as this kind of dopey kind of bloke. What channel was it shown on? Channel 4. And was it any good? Oh, I don't know. It's certainly the public hated it. It went from something like 4 million in the first show to 650,000. Channel 4 would put up posters and it was like a real big thing. You know, I remember on the Euston Road there's big posters with my face on it. It died on its arse. But whether that was... I don't know. I I mean, I thought at the time that really... Again, I never quite found my character really, and the director uh, who's dead now. But so, and she seemed very lost. She was no help. And we also tried to do too many things. And not only was it very inventive in terms of about Parisian artists, which apparently the public are not interested in, but it also the sets were very. The sets were based on like a set of table mats that the producer had, so they were very impressionistic. The sets looked like paintings, but I, maybe it was ahead of its time. I, I don't know. I mean, I've only got it on. VHS and I, I don't have a VHS player. Have you watched it? I've watched it for years now. I mean, it'd be in, maybe it's brilliant, you know. Or maybe maybe it is. And certainly Graham and Arthur got to make all the mistakes that they then, you know, on that that they then didn't make on Father Ted. So we'll pee for that. Do you like Father Ted? You I do. Think? I love it. I mean, I didn't watch it for about four years because I was so bitter about Paris. And then when it finally, I was going around telling people, I saying that. Has this amazing new show on called Father Ted, and they said yes, it's been on for five years. No, I think it's brilliant. I mean, I think absolutely brilliant. It really holds up fantastically well, and there's enough as well. I mean, one of the things I always say about the young ones is we didn't make enough. Oh, do you think? Yeah, we should have done another series. Really? Stupid. And why didn't you? Because they had this obsession that because Cleese had made twelve faulty towers that we should only do twelve. From the beginning, that was yeah, 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 yeah. Stupid. Do they have, like, reunions? You know, is there ever any kind of... Do people try and get you all together again for I think they try, but... Christmas yeah. special or... I know there was a DVD and we didn't even all get together to do the commentary, so... 
No, we're still... None of us have a problem with any of the others. Uh, I see Nigel from time to time, and I'm Rick and Aidan. We all met at Peter's place last year. But there's no possibility of... You know, it wouldn't work in any shape or form, really. And what about stand-up? I put, whenever I interview anyone, I put a thing out on Twitter and Facebook and stuff saying I'm interviewing this person. Do you have any questions? And almost all of the questions came back to you saying, is he going to do stand-up again? Why did he stop doing stand-up? Does he miss it? <laughs> do you miss it? Because it it's like a relationship, <sighs> isn't it? Not really. Well, only, a, a only an abusive one. <laughs> I mean, in my case, literally abusive. Why did you stop in the first <sighs> place? I just got tired, you know. Again, because you're being a pioneer, you know, it's tiring doing you know not knowing whether there's going to be anybody there tickets aren't going very well in leicester can you go and do the student radio you know oh so i just got worn out with it really and i think also my one of my drivers as it were one of my motivators is that i always wanted to sort of be at the cutting edge really and i felt i mean the last tour i did which you know was for two hours or something and was people were you know falling off their chairs laughing and stuff but i was still I didn't quite have the nerve to get rid. It would be like half new material and half the old hits. I never quite had the nerve to get rid of all the old gear. And I thought the only way that I could would really be to, you know, do what other people who love the game more do, which is to go out every night, do workshops, go around the country, go to Australia, go to the States, try out stuff. And I thought, oh, fuck, I can't can't face that. And so writing really satisfies apart from mass fame which having done it i'm no longer interested in you know writing satisfies everything about me as an art for me as an artist really you can you can deal with infinitely more complex ideas you can really uh, propound a kind of thesis in a, in a way that you can't in terms of stand-up and you take it much more seriously, you know, you are, which is a vanity really, but I do wish to be taken seriously. And I, I didn't think I was taken seriously enough as a comic, but I am as an author. I mean, next week I'm being made a fellow of the University of the Arts. I'm already a, an honorary professor. And that stuff plays very much to my kind of intellectual vanity, but that's what I like really. I mean, given my book readings are pretty comedic, I mean, it's not like, sometimes I get when I'm at literary festivals, you see a kind of author reading their book and it's like, short stories or something they're going nah, 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 nah. and then Dave comes and he looks out the window later that day the explosion of colours and he's like wow I work very hard at the book readings and they are I still have that clownish inclination that I always have to get laughs and so it is pretty and in a way they're more the Q&A in a way is more real comedy is more edgy comedy than stand-up was because you are genuinely improvising so this show at the Adderbelly is on the 14th of July Mm -hmm. and the book which is called Stalin at my homework (laughs) and that's coming out in September 9th so it's a kind of preview of the memoir you know so that's happening on the 14th of July and uh, book in September and your website if people want to keep up my website is alexisell.me. And you spell Alexi, A-L-E-X-E-I. A-L-E-X-E-I-S-E-Y-L-E. Alexi Sell. Alexi Sell. Alexi Sell. Alexi Sell. We love to hear him swear on the TV. He, he, he. Alexi, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.